0: All
1: right. Well, that was your chance to leave. <laughs> so Pastor Phil's taking some a little R&R. Good for him. It was a good week to do it. Because he's like, hey, can you do the next passage? I, and First Peter, I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. And then I read the passage. I'm like, oh. And I'll just... <laughs> Man, I'll be really honest with you, this one's a hard one for me, uh, because I don't have it all together on this, and so as you hear me pontificate authoritatively on some of the scripture, know that I'm mostly pointing the fingers at me and trying to figure this stuff out as we go, because this morning, maybe some of you are man, you're pumping fists and you are excited after the election and some of you are, feel like you got punched in the gut, okay? And so for a moment, we'll all just be forgiving of how the other person feels because we've always been in that place. We've been winners and losers in, in politics. And I also want to right the ship a little bit this morning and i think this passage does that as far as how we are supposed to be and exist in this world so we're in first peter and i love peter he makes a lot of sense to me he's got foot and mouth disease and you know he does things and they just they just make sense to me and they're usually wrong yeah, you think of peter is arguably one of the greatest people in, in history, but his greatness doesn't have a whole lot to do with him as a person and has everything to do with the goodness of God, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into that, into the goodness of God, uh, but Peter, if, if you don't know, he is one of the 12 uh, apostles called uh, by Jesus. Uh, he is almost, I believe, always listed as the, the first disciple when anytime there's, there's a list, uh, Simon uh, called Peter. Uh, they will always list him. And then Simon has this other special uh, privilege within the group because there's a group uh, of three that Jesus se- seems to spend a little bit more time with when he's on uh, the earth. And Peter is one of, these, one of these guys. Okay, you remember the moment, uh, the transfiguration. Uh, I believe it's, I'm going to mess up the names now. Peter, James, and John pretty sure that's right. Bible scholars can correct me on that. Uh, but Jesus kind of exposes his glory to these three uh, gentlemen. And I think the other two probably responded properly and were just like, wow. And Peter's like, let's, let's build an altar. Let's do something. Let's make this place a holy place and da, 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 which you figure out Peter h- hasn't really figured things out yet. And uh, But I, I like to build things. I probably would have done that too. Let's build something to remember this, this place. There's a quote uh, that I love. Uh, Mark Driscoll says this about Peter. He says, On his worst day, he bossed Jesus around and denied even knowing him on his best day. He wrote two books of the Bible and was martyred for refusing to deny Christ. And in his um, martyrdom, he was martyred under the rule of Nero, which we'll talk about a little bit more. He did not want to be crucified as Jesus was. He didn't feel he was worthy of it, and he was crucified upside down. That's what church tradition tells us about him. You know, and you'd think that even in Peter, that he would have it all down after Jesus You know, left and and the church has begun. He preached the first evangelical service sermon after uh, the Pentecost, if you remember, in the book of Acts, and three thousand were added uh, to that number that day. You would think he would have it all down, but later on, you find out in the book of Galatians, and you find out later in Acts that Peter was getting some things wrong because at some point he was eating with Gentiles and under Jewish law the gentiles were considered unclean but because he was now under Christ everything was was okay to eat but then his jewish buddies came and and he said oh well now i'm not going to eat with the gentiles and paul called him on that and i'm thinking man you would think he'd have it together by then but lord knows i don't and that just makes sense to me he's not perfect He's growing, and we see that in Peter, partly because he kind of lives out loud. And one of the things we often say about Peter is we say, ah, he was a lowly fisherman, but he has this, this fishing business. He's got lots of boats. He can come and go as he pleases to this business, so he was probably not the dolt that we always say he is, um, he may not have been as formally educated as many of, of the other rabbis, but he did spend three years with Jesus. So I think he trumps everybody on, on education. But he was probably a savvy uh, business person. We know that he was married because at some point in Mark, um, Jesus and the disciples go and visit his his mother-in-law because she's, she's sick um, he, in Capernaum. So he had a, he had a home. He had a, a wife, but we don't know anything about children. Um, now, Peter is, is writing in a time when the mood of Rome is beginning to turn against Christians. Now, we know later on in history, Rome becomes a, a Christian nation. I'm going to air quote that. But at this time, Christianity is this, this new New thing on the scene. And hostilities and suspicions were mounting against Christians in the empire. Uh, they were, they were, they were reviled by the Romans because they kept speaking about this other kingdom. Okay. And so that made them sound unpatriotic. And it made it sound like they were speaking against the emperor of the time. And that's a problem. (laughs) That's a problem. And imagine you live in Roman society, which many would say it mirrors a lot of our own moral sentiments in in the United States and and in the Western world. Imagine one day you start believing in Jesus and you live in Rome. And now all of a sudden, you're not going to go with your family to, to do the The temple sacrifices to some god, whatever god is in that town, and you're not going to do that. And all of a sudden, you're you're not going to just sleep with anybody you want. All of a sudden, you're counterculture, and the very fact that you won't do the things that we all do, and your family has done for years and years, now everybody feels what? They feel judged, right? Because for some reason, when You abstain from doing things that other people do. They feel like you look down on them, okay? And that's happening societally in this time in Rome. That sounds a little familiar. Peter, later on in chapter 5, he speaks as though he is writing from the church in Babylon. Well, he's not in Babylon. He's in Rome. So what is he saying? He's likening Rome to Babylon which if you go back to the to the book of Daniel you remember that that the persians they took over israel and exiled all of these israelites to babylon and now they're they have to live in this in the city uh, of the conquered the, the people that conquered them and it's a counterfeit kingdom the kingdom that God is trying to set up. And so Babylon becomes this code, kind of this code word for any kingdom that opposes the kingdom of God or any kingdom that would subvert the kingdom of God. And so he's speaking of, of Rome as Babylon, this place of oppression, this place where the church is up against a godless demonic Culture, But it just if you read to the end of the book in, in Revelations, we find that there is hope after Babylon. We see that the people were restored after Babylon in the Old Testament and they were brought back. And we talked about that uh, with Pastor Phil in the book of Ezra, the people uh, being restored to Babylon. And we know that the governments of the world will oppose the government of the kingdom. But we also know that one day Babylon will be destroyed so if you know anything about Nero besides Nero's pizza we had a Nero's pizza in the, the town I grew up in but he's known for burning Rome that's like his thing oh yeah the guy that, that burned Rome he was the, the emperor of the time and the, a huge fire broke out in Rome nobody's quite sure how it started uh, my guess is those things kind of happen pretty easy when everybody's lighting with, you know, fuel. And, and So my guess is, who knows how it happened. Somebody probably, maybe it's like the Chicago fire in, in 1870. A cow knocked over a lantern, as, as the story goes. Well, the people blamed Nero for this fire. And history tells us that he was off in his country home, like some 30 miles away. So he wasn't there. So now Nero's got a political problem because everybody's blaming him for burning down the city. So he's like, well, I've got I to deal with this. What am I going to do? I'm going to blame the Christians. Nobody likes them anyway. So he starts blaming the Christians for burning down the city. Convenient. Peter was writing to a Christian people who were living in a culture that called for tolerance and religious pluralism, but were treated with intolerance and discrimination against their religion. If you remember when Jesus is is on trial uh, before the crucifixion, the real issue that the Roman uh, government had was that he was disrupting the peace. They were fine with all the religions, just don't fight. Just everybody be at peace. And here comes Christianity that says there's only one true God. And here comes a religion that follows this guy saying, you know, I have a different kingdom. So we've got all these problems. And where we find uh, Peter here, they're not yet to the full-on persecution that they will experience later because we know that eventually Nero will burn Christians as, as light for his, as torches for his parties. And we know that Christians are, are sent to the gladiatorial re, arena and they are fed to lions for sport. But we're not there yet. But we know that it's coming. We know that it's coming. And some believe that in First uh, Peter 2, by the time he's writing uh, this, the second book that they're, they're into, That kind of persecution. And we know that eventually Nero kills Paul. The apostle Paul. Nero kills Peter. So he's killing off their their pastors. But we're not there yet. Yet. In this passage. So the tension is building. Christians are probably becoming somewhat fearful. I am describing the past. It's just... Just in case you were wondering. So, so far in Peter, in the, in the book of Peter, uh, we've been, I don't know how many weeks. Has it been a month, month and a half, somewhere around like that? But God, what we've learned is that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Paul, or Peter, starts out this book encouraging the believers. And he says, you have this living hope and you will be tested you will undergo trials, but those trials will strengthen and prove the genuineness of our faith. Peter then calls us to be holy, to live as lives that will remind the world we live in of Jesus. He, he calls us to live to the standard that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, be holy as I am holy. And maybe some would, would Translate that as, be perfect as I am perfect, or be blameless as I am blameless. Like, wow, that's a tall order, but that's the calling of the Christian. We're to be on this road of sanctification. Peter calls us to, to holy living and reminds us that in Jesus, we are his people. We are God's people. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that takes us pretty much right up to verse uh, 10 in chapter 2. And so now we're in verse 11 of chapter 2. And Peter moves from fleshing out our place before God and in his kingdom to urging us to live as citizens in that kingdom, as people who belong to a different kingdom or to put it another way Peter moves from the our salvation to our sanctification to our submission have you have you ever trained for a job or maybe gone to school for a job so I went to school for ministry um Went to Bible school, and I took, man, I took a lot of Bible theology courses, and I took um, Bible courses on specific books of the Bible. There's a whole, whole semester on the book of Romans, uh, which blew my mind. I did a whole semester on, on Hebrews. Man, these, these classes were amazing. I did a class on wisdom literature. I did systematic theology. Our, our, our professor, we called him Mayor the Slayer. Um, He was one of the last that still graded on a bell curve. I got out of that one with a D. I was feeling pretty good about it. Ds are not acceptable, boys. (laughs) You don't have Ds. So I went to years and years of Bible training. I took preaching courses, which, so back then... The thought of preaching or standing up in front of somebody to to give a sermon terrified me. It actually still does. Um, So I took all my preaching courses in the summertime because then they'd be like two weeks of like, you know, hardcore, crazy. But then I'd have to do it for a whole semester because when I get nervous, I get sick. And I'm like, I can't do a whole semester of being sick. So I took all these courses. Man, I get out of ministry or out of school. And I think, man, I got it. I'm good. I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to straighten everybody out because I got it. And then you get into ministry, and you get to actually doing the job, and you find out you don't have a clue what you're doing. I still feel that way a little bit. You know, I remember shortly after I, my first job in, in church was back in, what, '04, and there was no class in school to prepare me for a parent coming into my office and blaming me for their child's behavior. I will tell you, I did not handle that well. There's, there's, no, there's no class that taught us how to handle some of the societal issues that we are faced with day in. In day out. And I felt so unprepared and so out of my element, and that's how I feel this passage is going. This is what I think Peter does to us here. We're, we're studying chapter one and chapter two, and I'm like, yeah, I got this. I understand my faith. Okay, yeah, trials are coming. Okay, you want us to live holy. Okay, I got that. So now he's going to begin telling us what that looks like. And I'm thinking, oh, I can do this, live for Jesus. I'll help some old ladies across the
0: street,
1: and, uh, you know, I'll mow the grass. I got And he doesn't do any of that. So in verse 11, he says, Beloved, what a term of endearment. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So I want to look at, he calls them sojourners and exiles. Back in in chapter 1 and verse 1, he calls them the, the elect exiles. Well, they were probably born and raised in the town that they're living in. What is he talking about? He is, again, reiterating that our citizenship is not first and foremost to the country that we live in. It is first and foremost to the kingdom of God. Where do we belong? Not here. We are not citizens merely of just the United States. Our first identity is as citizens of God's kingdom. We do not answer merely to the laws of man that are imperfect, as imperfect as the people that wrote them. We answer to a higher law, the law that is over creation, given by the perfect lawgiver, We don't base our morality on what seems right in our society. We understand our understanding of right and wrong, good and evil, moral and immoral comes from the word of God. It's eternal. We do not belong here. And he goes on here to kind of reiterate what he was already been talking about in chapter 2, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Sinful desire essentially is anything that keeps us from living as God's people. Anything that keeps us from living as God's people is a sinful desire. Recognizing that the thing that hinders us the most in this world is not our society, it's not our, our culture. It's not demonic. It's oppression. It's my own depraved, sinful desires. You are your own worst enemy. I love to blame everyone else but myself. I don't need Satan to help me sin. I'm really good at it on my own. <laughs> we long to see Jesus work here on this earth. In fact, if you remember uh, the Lord's Prayer, it says, um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're doing as a church. We want to bring kingdom living, the kingdom of God living here to this planet. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the term Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, it It generally refers to those that are circumcised, the Jews, and those that are uncircumcised, the Gentiles, or within the Jewish system would be considered unclean. In this context, he's really using Gentiles as unbelievers, as unbelievers. And he calls us to be above reproach. To be above reproach, let nothing ill be said of you because of your behavior conduct yourselves honorably because there are those who will find salvation through the actions, through your actions, and be able to face God on the day of judgment and glorify him because they know him and they will have gotten there because they had seen a real, authentic faith in you. That's terrifying (laughs) to know that somebody's salvation might be contingent on my behavior. Yikes. Lord, help us. And so maybe at this point, we need to take inventory of our conduct. There are a lot of people that I know and love on Facebook that I have blocked because I can't stand to see the constant vitriol that they keep putting out there. I don't want to see it. And some of these people are Christians, and I'm thinking that's representing Christ to the world on Facebook. Take inventory of our conduct. How do we treat our neighbors? With quiet disdain? Are we always fighting about that, you know, where the line to mow is? You ever ever have that? And and it seems like that your neighbor's always trying to take some of your yard by mowing just a little bit more and nobody? Okay. Maybe that's just me. I've had to repent on that one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I do love, I have a writer. Mowing the lawn is one of my favorite things. I put a book in my ear, put the headphones on fantastic. Jill's like, I'll mow the lawn. No, no, I got it, really. I got it. I'm selfish with that. So Peter tells us to be above reproach. Okay. I can do that. I'll make sure I always help the old ladies across the street. Okay, got it. I'll stop fighting with my neighbor about where the lawn is mowed. I can do that. All right. So now Peter is going to give us some pointers on how to do this. And apparently he thinks that this one's really important because it's the first one he gives us. Down in verse 13 it says, Be subject to... For the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors, is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't feel much like being subject to every human institution. This one kind of gets me, and I think it's really hard. I think it's hard for us as Americans to deal with this. I think it's hard for us as Protestants. I mean, our whole movement was based off of a protest. Our country was based off of a revolution. This is what we do down with the man. And here he is saying, be subject, which means put yourself under the authority of every human institution. Really, Peter? Of all the things you could have asked me to do to be more like Christ, this is the one you picked first out of the gate. That's why Pastor Phil took this week off, I'm telling you. <laughs> he saw this coming down the pike. He's like, ah, I'm out. <laughs> so in verse 14, it, it says something interesting. It says, Where's his dad? Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And for the most part, we can see in human history that that governments are a restraint against human depravity and human lawlessness. And now we're all thinking of, what about that government? What about those people? Yeah, Governments, for the most part, have been a mess throughout the year. But they, throughout the years, but they are a restraint upon human depravity. Martin Luther called government a necessary evil. I beg to differ with him. I think government is the logical result of people trying to live in community, of people trying to, to, to live. We're going to organize. So I would say that I think governments are instituted by God. Of course, any human institution is going to be flawed. And as Americans who live in the greatest democratic experiment in history, a place where human flourishing knows no rival, we still long for the theocracy that is foretold of in Scripture. To put it in in our context, as Christians, we are looking forward to the blameless executive. We are looking forward to The perfect lawgiver and the most just judicator. But in the meantime, while we wait for that perfect government under Jesus, we are to be subject to every human institution the president, the governor our local leadership, the courts, law enforcement. And I think about maybe things that I've said and thought in the last, I don't know, six months about some of my authorities, and and I need to repent for them. So what does this look like? What does submission, man, just that word submission, I don't know about you, but it rubs me the wrong way. I don't want to submit. I don't want to submit to anybody. Jesus did. I'm bad at this. If you talk to my wife, most of my grief and, and struggles in life have been because I'm unwilling to submit to those around me. Ask Pastor Phil. He would probably agree with that. So what does this look like? How do we submit? How do we bring ourselves into subject with our authorities? Number one, we pray for them. We pray for them. You don't like Trump? I don't care. You pray for him. If you believe in God and you believe that he's in control, you believe that God put him there. In two months, you don't like Joe Biden? I don't care. Neither does Jesus. You pray for him. In 1 Timothy, he calls this intercessory prayer, which is this idea of going to God on behalf of somebody else. We are to go to God on behalf of Governor Whitmer. And I, I, I will be honest with you, it's a lot easier to pray for the politicians that are on my side of the aisle than on the other side. That's a heart check. That's a heart check. Number two. I only have three of these. It was all my heart could take. We live in a we the people government. We live in a little c democracy. The version of democracy that we have is a representative republic. So what do we do? We have representatives. We go to our representatives. We say we want this. We don't want that. And they go to the government. There is room for complaint. There is room for this kind of interaction with our, with our government and with each other. But number two is speak against policies and actions not the authority or the person. Speak against policies and actions, not the authority or the person. This one's really, really, really hard. Especially if you don't like the guy in the White House or the the gal in Lansing. If you don't like them, this gets really hard. Because what we want to do is rather than say, well, I disagree with this foreign policy or that, we say... We don't like your hair. Isn't that what we do? Rather than attack his policies, I'm going to talk about the current guy in the White House, rather than attack his policies, which I think there's lots of room for that, we say, orange man bad. Now we're attacking the person, we're disrespecting the authority, and we're not doing what, what we can in our system of government, which is argue policy. We're bad at this. on both sides. And if you don't believe me, if you can stomach it, go on Facebook. It's horrible. It's all we do. Well, if I don't agree with you, well, I'm gonna call you a racist bigot. We're not getting anywhere. If you're trying to get somebody onto your page, calling them a racist bigot isn't gonna help. Flash. but we can lovingly and intelligently talk and argue about policies in our in our nation I love a good argument I think Jesus did too reading through the gospels in Titus chapter 3 it reminds them uh, I'm just going to read uh, read it. it says remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient to be ready for every good work here's the kicker to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people I have broken every one of those prepositional phrases to speak evil of no one To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, (laughs) and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Man, I am 0 for 4 on that list. And maybe you're reading that list and you're thinking, I'm 0 for 4 too. Or you're 1 for 4. That's not great either. Pray for our authorities. You can speak against policies and actions, but not the authority or the person. Now remind you, Peter's writing this about a guy who pretty soon is going to use Christians as tiki torches. We are especially bad at this one, speaking against policies and actions. I think, I think as a church we're, we're bad at this one we are especially bad when the other party is in power we are especially bad on social media we are a culture that is over socialized and underinformed and we'd rather throw shade than have real conversation or really listen when i say we i mean me Number three, use the channels afforded you to lodge complaints. Representatives, the courts. There is room for protest. There is room for marches. But I will tell you that anarchy is not the Christian way. If you're burning down AutoZone, you're doing it wrong. There is room for that. And we can look in our history and see times When I believe that there were godly protests and godly marches. I feel like it's been a while since I've seen one. We see in Acts 22, we see Paul. He uses the channels afforded him as a Roman citizen to keep from being flogged. He appeals uh, to his authorities and saves him because he's out preaching Jesus and everybody gets mad and they want him flogged and he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't flog a Roman citizen without, without trial. And they don't. Where's the line? Because the, uh, the Christian in me goes, well, at what point do I push back? At what point do I follow the authority of God and ignore the human authorities? When disobeying God's law becomes compulsory, when disobeying God's law becomes compulsory by the government, in other words, when the government says you must go against the word of God, that is when we push back. And I will say that we are not there. We are not there yet. There is room for civil disobedience and there are examples in the Bible and many of them you are familiar with. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're back back to uh, Babylon. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are Israelites that have been taken captive because they're smart guys and, and they want to turn them into good Babylonians. And they are asked to bow to a statue, to worship a statue. And when, when the horns blow and the lyres play and all that stuff, there's, everyone's supposed to bow down. And in a sea of people that are bowing down to the statue, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not bowing down. Civil disobedience. They weren't being violent. They weren't raising a ruckus. Civil disobedience. And there were consequences, right? They get thrown into a furnace. But because of their civil disobedience, we got to see God do something amazing. I think we can honor God in our civil disobedience. Daniel, in the same book, is thrown into the lion's den because he prays to God, and they were only supposed to pray to the king, and he gets caught. And his civil disobedience created an opportunity for God to do something amazing. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were told to stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus, and they refused. And this is what they said. It's up to you to determine whether it's right before God to obey you rather than God. As for us, we can't stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is he talking about here? He's really saying, hey Christian, don't give the unbelieving world any more ammo than they've already got. Stop giving them reasons to speak ill against you. Stop it. Because every time there's an issue with a high profile or Christian, it is everywhere in the news. Most recently I think of uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. You represent a Christian institution. You were part of the moral majority. And you do this? It makes us all look bad. <laughs> Don't give them any more ammo. If he wants to live like that, fine, but stop calling yourself a Christian. Verse 16. Live as people who are free. It says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God we're back to submission because you are free in Christ because there is therefore now no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus because he has paid the penalty for our sins you are free you are free to submit you are free to obey the authorities Because God has freed you. If you do not put yourself under submission to the authorities that God has placed over us, you are sinning. And when you sin, according to Romans chapter 6, sinning is the very definition of being a slave. It says that when you were dead in in your transgressions transgressions and sins, You were a slave to sin and had no choice but to sin. But because God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, now we are free to do good. Now we are free to live as Christ would have us live. We are free to become more like Him. And you are free to obey even when you don't want to. You are free to be made low. (laughs) You're welcome. In Christ, we are free to live a godly life without Christ and his redemption. We are not free to live a godly life because of sin's entanglement. Last verse. Honor everyone. I feel like this is just an exclamation point at the end of this passage. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And you think it's hard now. When he, calls this, when he calls Nero emperor, you understand that there is a, 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 a God cult that is wrapped around the emperor. That to pay homage to the emperor in that time is to say that he is God. So if they can do it, if they can submit to authority, surely we can. Surely we can honor everyone. What does this look like? It looks like putting everyone before yourself. Apparently that means our authorities too. Just for the record, I have tried to be an equal opportunity offender this morning. Hopefully I have offended everyone equally and not just some of you. Honor everyone, and I just want to leave you with this passage, because we have a fantastic example of what it looks like to honor everyone. Philippians chapter two it says, "Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's tough when you live with brothers and sisters. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having the mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who, being, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What's it look like to honor everyone? That's what it looks like. Jesus on the cross. That's what it looks like. Jesus enduring suffering and pain. That's the best example we've got. And I have to read the rest of this passage. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. Because we are citizens of his kingdom, and we're just sojourners, we're just passing through, here and because of Jesus sacrifice we are free to live as one who is a citizen of the kingdom of God And so this morning and this week and this month as all the tumult of election goes on and on you can watch it like you watch a football game, right? Oh, this side's coming and this side's coming. Because we know who wins in the end. And we know that no matter what happens in this nation, that our citizenship is with him in heaven. And we have that hope. And we look forward to it. Let's pray. And then we're gonna sing a song. Lord, I thank you that we have a hope and a future you set up kings and you take them down. And we're always moving toward you. Lord, I pray that this this word from, from Peter would break us. Lord, I pray that when the world looks at us here at this church, that they would see a people who love you. And they would see that because of the way we handle ourselves in politics. We love you, Lord, and we're trying. In your name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us, and we're going to sing, Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. This song is always appropriate.
0: What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient all know we he counts not their sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are Would wait as we constantly roam. What Father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is poor. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Blood was the payment, his life was the cost We stood beneath the debt we could Yes.
1: again that you were stronger than darkness you were stronger than sin you were stronger than death and even though our sins have been many and we've strayed so often your mercy is more and we lean on that this morning Lord we pray that you would do a work in our town in Holly Lord we ask that your name would be lifted higher through this time. And that your saving work would be made manifest in our current circumstances, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.